Hi, and welcome to another episode of Nothing to Hide. My name is Kevin. Uh, I want to apologize for not putting up an episode last week. It was a bit hectic for me, but I intend to make up for it with a bonus episode this week. Today's episode, I'm just going to be reading a couple of stories from a few books that I uh, really like that have inspired me in some way or, or just resonate with me. And um, the first book that I'm going to be reading from is called Tattoos on the Heart. It's by Father Gregory Boyle, who uh, operates uh, Homeboy Industries in L.A., where he tries to um, help gang members uh, rehabilitate so that they avoid their... Uh, dangerous or drug-riddled their life. So this story is is from uh, a moment where Greg was attending an award ceremony I believe and uh, often he'll bring along uh, a couple of gang members that he's working with to to kind of just join with the experience, I guess. So uh, I'll go ahead and read this story. Um, Sometimes college professors make their students read my book about youth program Homeboy Industries, Tattoos on the Heart, against their will. I'm not complaining. Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington, strong-armed its entire freshman class into it a few years ago and then invited me to speak and asked that I bring along two of the gang members I work with. Whenever such a chance presents itself, I pick homies who have never flown before. Recently on a trip to Washington, D.C., one of them asked, Are we flying Virgin Airlines because it is our first time? When I went to Spokane, I took Mario and Bobby. We flew out of Burbank where passengers walk onto the airplane airport tarmac and go, up to, go upstairs to get into the planes. Of the hundreds of first-timers I've traveled with over the years, no one has ever been as terrified as Mario. He was gasping and flushed, and we were still inside the terminal. Out the window, I could see flight attendants climbing the stairs, each holding two venti-sized drinks. Mario emerged from his terror tunnel long enough to ask, in a panicky whine, When are we going to board? I pointed to the coffee-carrying attendants. As soon as they sober up the pilots, I probably shouldn't have said this. Tall and gangly, Mario may be the most tattooed individual ever at Homeboy. He is all sleeved out, neck blackened with the name of his gang and and his entire face covered in tattoos. I had never been in public with him, and I watched as people sidestepped us in the airport. Mothers pulled their kids in tightly. The recoiling was pronounced and widespread. And yet, everyone at Homeboy would agree that Mario is the gentlest of men. He calmed himself, and we got to Spokane without event. At Gonzaga, the auditorium was full, maybe 1,000 people. Mario and Bobby spoke first. Nervous, again, hands and voices shaking, they told their stories of violence, terror, and abuse of all kinds. Honest to God, their words were like flames. You had to keep your distance or get scorched. I asked Bobby and Mario to join me for the question and answer period. 
A woman near the fur front spoke first. You say you're a father, she said to Mario, and your son and daughter are starting to reach their teenage years. What wisdom do you impart to them? She recalibrated. What advice do you give them? She sat, and Mario sifted her words, looking for a response. I just... Standing next to him, I could feel his effort to complete his thought. He clutched the microphone and teared up, stretching his arm toward the woman as if he were pleading with her. I just... I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. The woman stood again. Now it was her turn to cry. You are loving, you are kind, she said, steadying herself. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. There wasn't much of a pause before the audience stood and began to clap. All Mario could do was hold his face in his hands. A lanky, tattooed gang member revealed his wounds in front of a thousand strangers who lost the temptation to despise him and recognize themselves in his brokenness. Suddenly, kinship and exquisite mutuality, no matter how we voted. So that again um, was from Greg Boyle. And that story, even as I'm reading it, is like making me a little emotional because you just picture a gang member who's seen those closest to him get murdered, um, just everything that's tragic. And he's asked point blank, someone that's now a father, what he would want for his children and his instinct is for them not to be like him but yet he's matured and developed and evolved into this gentle man who's really changed his life and that's it's not, it's not often we hear those that are caught struggling, poverty, you know, um, racism, systemic racism, that don't have any chances, who then walk away from what is often very um, profitable endeavors uh, in that life, but still obviously very dangerous uh, where you, you can get killed. And to start living an honest and truthful life. I find that just absolutely so powerful. This next story is by a poet by the name of Alison Luderman. It's called The New Breed. And um, it's more of a story, I guess, than it is a poem. And I think it's appropriate. Um, 
for what's happening today uh, begins I see her on TV screaming into a microphone her head is shaved and she is beautiful and 17 and her high school was just shot up she's had to walk by friends lying in their own blood her teacher bleeding out and she's my daughter the one I never had and she's your daughter and everyone's daughter and she's her own woman in the fullness of her young fire calling bullshit on politicians who take money from the gun makers tears rain down her face but she doesn't stop shouting she doesn't apologize she keeps calling them out all of them all of us who didn't do enough to stop this thing and you can see the gray faces of those who have always held power contort, utterly baffled, to face this new breed of young woman, not silky, not compliant, not caring if they call her a ten or a troll. And she cries, but she doesn't stop, yelling truth into the microphone, through her voices, though her voice is raw and shaking, and the Florida sun is Molten, molten brass. I'm 3,000 miles away, thinking how Naruda said the blood of the children ran through the streets without fuss like children's blood. Only now she is, they are, raising a fuss, shouting down the walls of Jericho. And it's not that we road-weary elders have been given the all-clear exactly, but our shoulders do let down a little. We breathe from a deeper place. We say to each other, well, it looks like the baton may be passing to these next runners and they are fleet as thought, fiery as stars. And we take another breath and say to each other, the baton has been passed and we set off then running hard behind them. Again, that was by Alison Luderman. And um, this, this poem was very moving. Um, I'm sure as many of you are listening to the many young people that are devoting all their time and energy to all the wrong that's taking place in the world and often leaving themselves vulnerable to be attacked with tear gas, rubber bullets, even getting, getting in the way of cars and cars attempting to take their lives. It's very powerful in that they will be the ones that are going to take positions of authority in the near future and will be responsible for the many changes that need to take place today. 
Okay, this next story was read by Jack Cornfield. He uh, shares it a few times. It's one of my favorites on his podcast. It goes, this is a story from a Hawaiian teacher. She writes, one of the processes I use to help people talk to each other and build community is an exercise where people tell three stories. The first is a story of all your names. The second is a story of your community. And the third story I asked is to tell the story of your gift. One time I did this with the group at our local high school. We went around the circle and got to this young man, Kele. He told the story of his names well and the stories of his community. But when it came time to delve the story of his gift, he asked, what, miss? What kind of gift do you think I get, eh? I stay in the special ed class, and I get a hard time reading, and I cannot do the math. And why do you make me ashamed for asking me that kind of question? What kind of gift do you have? If I had gift, do you think I'd be in this class? Kaylee just shut down and shut up, and I felt ashamed. All the times I've ever done that, I've never meant to shame anyone. Two weeks later, I'm in the local grocery store and I see him down one of those aisles and I see his back and I'm going down there with my cart and I think, nope, I'm not going there. And I turned around as fast as I can. And then he turns around and he sees me. He throws his arms open and he says, auntie, I've been thinking about you. You know, two weeks I've been thinking about what my gift, what my gift. And I say, okay, brother, what your gift? And he says, you know, I've been thinking and I cannot do that math stuff, and I cannot read so good. But auntie, when I go in the ocean, I can call the fish, and the fish should come every time. And every time I can put food on my family's table, every time. And sometimes when I stay in the ocean, and the sharky come, and he look at me, and I look at him, and I tell him, uncle, I'm not going to take plenty fish. I'm just going to take one, two fish, just for my family. All the rest I leave for you. And so the shark, he say, okay, you cool, brother. And I tell the shark, uncle, you cool. And the shark, he go his way, and I go mine. And I look at this boy, Kele, and I know what a genius he is. But in our society, the way the schools are run, he's rubbish. He's destroyed, not appreciated. So when I talk to his teacher and the principal of the school, I ask them, what would his life be like? if this curriculum were gift-based, if we were able to see the gift in each of our children and taught them around their gifts, what would happen if our community was gift-based, if we really understood what the gift of each member of our community was and we really began to support them in that? I really like this story, um, obviously, for its message of unity and recognizing in everyone a gift, whether, whether it be in the STEM field, or whether it's in the arts, or whether it's their ability to simply listen. I know I definitely lack that, but I do ask myself what kind of world we would live in if we truly did celebrate um, each of our gifts 
as opposed to the emphasis on you know science technology engineering mathematics although they are definitely very important but more important i don't think so this last poem i'm going to read is by nikki giovanni who is uh, a poet uh, she's an author of um, numerous collections of poetry um, she is the recipient of the Rosa Parks Women of Courage Award. She's an activist. And uh, this poem is called Ego Tripping. There may be a reason why. I was born in the Congo. I walked to the fertile crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every 100 years, falls into the center, giving divine perfect light. I am bad. I sat on the throne, drinking nectar with Allah. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to cool my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned burned out the Sahara Desert with a packet of goat's meat and a change of clothes. I crossed it in two hours. I am a gazelle, so swift, so swift you can't catch me. For a birthday present, when he was three, I gave my son, Hannibal, an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My strength flows ever on. My son, Noah, built new ark, and I stood proudly at the helm. As we sailed on a soft summer day, I turned myself into myself and was Jesus. Men intone my loving name, all praises, all praises. I am the one who would save. I sow diamonds in my backyard. My bowels deliver uranium. The filings for my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, I caught a cold and blue, my nose giving oil to the Arab world. I am so hip, even my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and had to round off. The earth as I went, the hair from my head thinned and gold was laid across three continents. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal. I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the sky. Again, that was by Nikki Giovanni. I, uh, I really love this poem because it's a testament to, first of all, the strength of women and how she perceives um, her own ego. But it, it also is a great reminder that we're not necessarily who we, the type of boxes we put ourselves in. 
and I've, I've mentioned this before, and I think it's important to mention it again. I myself am a son, um, I'm an uncle, um, I was a banker, I am now unemployed or funemployed, as my friends say, a psychonaut, uh, a brother, but I'm not necessarily any one of those things individually. So I am all those things and I'm not any of those things. It's a contradiction, but it's also true. And so this poem also reminds me to let go of my attachments to some of those um, archetypes, perhaps, you can say, that I'm not necessarily any one of them or any of them at all, or all of them at once. So, um, I'm going to end the podcast there. Again, I apologize for not posting last week. I also want to give a special shout out to Teresa, who uh, is a very dear friend of mine. And uh, I found out that she's been listening to some of my podcasts. So I just want to give her a personal shout out and uh, thank you for listening. So on that note, thanks again, and I'll catch you probably in a few days. Bye.